I am rereading Catherine Bauer's underappreciated tome from 1934, Modern Housing, for book research. I was skimming through it last week when I stumbled upon a quote that really stuck out to me. Bauer's quote, a remark made to me in 1932 by a city planner of Cologne was already substantially true in 1900. The difference between German and American cities is the fact that the American town only does what is expressly permitted, while the German city does everything except what is expressly forbidden. What struck me is that this is a really excellent analysis of zoning in the U.S. And it was made in a time when zoning in the U.S. was only 10 to 15 years old. Most cities had just recently enacted zoning ordinances. Our zoning codes very explicitly describe what is allowed outright, what might be allowed with conditions, and what is definitely not allowed. In contrast, Germany's land use regulations, and they don't really have zoning in the sense that we do in the U.S., they have very distinct spatial planning policies. Frankly, I think if we had adopted something closer to that, our cities would be better off. But their land use regulations are significantly looser. And I would note that what Bauer said 90 years ago, and comparing to today, it still holds true. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about the absurdity of zoning in the USA. Welcome to the Livable Low Carbon City Podcast, the show about the interconnectedness of low carbon living, decarbonized buildings, and quality of life. I am your host, Michael Eliason, architect and founder of Large Lab. Rereading Bauer's comment about American zoning only allowing what is expressly permitted was so incredibly accurate, even 90 years later, that it sent chills up my spine. Land use codes here in the U.S. are significantly more complex than in most other countries, with pages upon pages indicating what is not allowed, what is allowed, and where, and how much. And it's gotten worse with the passage of time. Subsequent councils and mayors have overlaid additional layers of bureaucracy, of requirements, Almost none of them related to issues around public health, light, air, ventilation. And I'm sure there's absolutely zero correlation with the subsequent housing crises unfolding in nearly every city in the U.S. today. Over time, we've piled on more and more restrictions. We've turned multifamily zoning into several different zoning levels and then downzoned to even lower use levels. We've taken zoning categories and divided them into narrower and narrower uses with even fewer uses actually permitted. I had a conversation with a German architect when I was working in Bavaria about the issue of zoning and about use and how we're so restrictive in what we allow. And he did not understand why single family houses and multifamily housing were considered different uses. And he's absolutely correct. They're both dwelling. Both zones have both owned and rented housing. So why do we dictate to such a narrow degree what is allowed and what is not allowed. The end result of all of this is, frankly, our cities are not working. They're choked by cars. They're stale. Downtowns go dead as commuters drain them to leave the city or go back to their neighborhoods in the city. Neighborhoods lack a good economic and social mix of residents. Most parts of town lack a mix of uses to keep them vibrant and active. And it's really difficult to allow residents and workers to live a low-carbon lifestyle. And these issues, they're not limited to just the city. The tentacles of zoning reach way out into the surrounding areas, the sprawling suburbs, suburbs that lack basic infrastructure like sidewalks and social housing, suburbs that largely can't even be retrofitted because they're so horribly planned and laid out. And so there's this nagging question. We're a century into zoning. We're a century into cars. We're finding out that both are not great for cities. They're not great for public health. They're not great for creating walkable, livable, 
low carbon places. And so when are we going to admit this? When are we going to look at the history, a history that is rooted in racism and classism and exclusion? When are we going to start to rectify this situation? And here's an example from Seattle. This is not limited to Seattle. This is an issue that is replicated in almost every city in the U.S. In Seattle, we're at the 100th anniversary of Seattle's first zoning ordinance. Now, this zoning ordinance was written by the planner who worked in the St. Louis Planning Department when they wrote the racial zoning ordinance, an ordinance that was subsequently thrown out by the Supreme Court. And what the Planning Department of St. Louis did was they rewrote it and effectively just removed explicit references to race. If you've read Color of Law, and if you've read any of my writing, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. It's Harland Bartholomew. Now, I'll take a second here and pause for your booze. Before Seattle zoning ordinance was passed, multifamily housing was actually legal on every square inch of the city. Even in industrial areas, there were no single family zoned areas. Now there were neighborhoods that were largely single family, but you could still add multifamily housing in them. There were restrictions based on height, based on the material that was used, but that was really it. And with the passing of the first zoning ordinance in 1923, multifamily housing was still allowed by right in business districts, commercial districts, even in manufacturing and industrial areas. But much of the city where multifamily housing had previously been legal was now restricted to zoning that only allowed single-family houses. And this is part of the reason we have legacy neighborhoods and legacy buildings, both in industrially zoned areas. There are neighborhoods that are in industrial zones. And it's also why we have multifamily housing in areas that are presently zoned single-family. Like I said, Seattle is not an anomaly here. Your city likely has this too. Honestly, some of these legacy areas are my favorite parts of the city, right? Top-rated cafes, restaurants, randomly situated situated within a single family zone that you can walk to, we'd never allow that today. A mix of uses, the very things that you need to do in your day-to-day -day life to facilitate low carbon living, to make it possible, the horror. But today, housing is no longer legal in Seattle's industrial zones. And there are two exceptions to this. The first exception, dwellings for artists are allowed, but only as a conditional use. And, and only in buildings that existed before 1987, the very kinds of buildings and industrial zones that probably don't make for very healthy and great places to live. And the other option is an 800 square foot caretaker's loft. Now this last one is interesting. There have been a number of recent commercial buildings in industrial areas that are situated adjacent to residential neighborhoods. And some really savvy firms have added what is effectively a small high-end home at the roof level of these buildings, typically for the owner, but it provides them a place to live. Now the city is currently updating its land use policies around industrial lands. It'll be interesting to see where this goes. For decades, policy in Seattle has been centered around keeping industrial lands for industry. Even allowing the hint of other uses has been rapidly dismissed. But this is changing. Of course, manufacturing jobs in cities are generally declining. And so there are a lot of storage facilities and large commercial office buildings being built in the industrial areas instead. Of course, this puts pressure on industrial land prices, which could further push out industrial uses, industrial businesses. So this update is looking at a broader mix of uses that is presently allowed, housing, industrial, business. Frankly, I think this is great. I'm a massive proponent of the productive city of Industry 4.0, and I think there are a lot of interesting opportunities around joining housing and manufacturing. So it will be interesting to see if this is something the city is able to push and push in the right direction so that we get a good mix. We still do get to maintain and grow our manufacturing base, but a lot of it will come down to the details, and the details are going to be based on zoning, and zoning generally doesn't work out the way everyone wants it to.
So I mentioned the zoning categories. Today in Seattle, our land use code has 38 zoning levels. Seattle isn't some sort of anomaly. This is pretty common. Some cities actually have more. When it comes to the lowest levels of zoning categories, your low-rise zoning, your single-family zoning, we have seven categories. Although I must point out, we no longer have single-family zoning per se. We have revised the language to neighborhood residential. Presently, this is just a name change. It's not a change in use. Uh, I hope with the comp plan update that that changes. I don't think there should be any single family zoning in the city or the surrounding cities for that matter. So in this former single family zoning level, the neighborhood residential, we have three category designations and they're all based on the size of the lot. The next step up, slightly above detached houses, more kind of small scale courtyard buildings, duplexes, triplexes. We have a category for that, residential small lot. And then we have three separate categories of low rise zones with varying absurdities of what is allowed. These are generally only going to be low rise apartment buildings, condo buildings, largely townhouses, and apartment buildings with almost exclusively studios or one bedrooms. Do other countries have the same degree of categorization in their land use codes? I'd say it's mixed. And the countries that I think are doing better on these issues than others generally have fewer categories. As an example, Japan, which has a federal zoning, so it's dictated at the federal level, municipalities can't override it and undercut it. It only has 12 zones. Their lowest zoning level, category one, exclusively low-rise residential zone, is designated for low-rise residential buildings. Low-rise residential buildings also used as shops or offices, as well as educational facilities. What this means is that there are detached houses, there are small apartment buildings, duplexes, triplexes, the, the horror that is basically missing middle, as well as small-scale mixed-use buildings with shops or offices intermingled, as well as schools or daycare. Imagine waking up one morning, being able to walk a few blocks to drop your kiddo off at daycare, walk a few more blocks to grab your coffee, and then boom, your office is right there as well. Not quite a 15-minute city, but a significantly better urban environment than you would get with exclusionary zoning in U.S. cities. And we should look at how this is employed, right? This lowest zoning category, it doesn't make up two-thirds of the land area of Tokyo. If it did, Tokyo's population would be nowhere near 14 million people, and their housing prices would be incredibly high. Nope. Most of the city is actually made up of the more intensive residential or mixed-use zoning categories. But if we compare that to the U.S., the lowest zoning level in the U.S., single-family zoning. It's the overwhelming majority of land area, save for a handful of U.S. cities, and really it's just New York City. In 2019, and I can't believe it was that long ago because it feels a lot more recent. COVID has really wrecked with my concept of time. Emily Badger had a really great piece for the New York Times highlighting the absurd extents of single-family zoning in U.S. cities and how little land actually allowed multifamily zoning. Now, this is something that I've been advocating around and talking about for a decade, but this it just beautifully highlighted how little area in our cities are actually allowed to be urban, are actually allowed to be dense, to have social housing, and to actually even be walkable. Now, Germany's zoning levels are also dictated at the federal level in the Bau NVO, the Baunutzungsverordnung or Building Use Ordinance. Like Japan, there are very few zoning categories compared to U.S. cities. Only 11. Well, technically there are 13, but two are for special use categories like campgrounds and large unclassified areas like ports. The lowest residential category is the Kleinsiedlungsgebiet, the small settlement area. Again, like Japan, 
the lowest use category allows for a multitude of uses rather than just restricting it to detached houses. This ordinance has three parts. The first describing what this is for. This is small settlement areas that are primarily used to accommodate small settlements, including residential buildings with personal gardens and part-time agricultural jobs. And part two, what else is permitted? Well, there are two categories, detached houses, as well as shops that serve the daily needs of the area, bars, restaurants, and even non-disturbing manufacturing. Yes, even here, there is a mix of uses allowed. And this is really the secret sauce of what makes German and Japanese zoning, in my opinion, so much more flexible and so much better in creating the kind of mixed-use neighborhoods that, that we claim that we would like to see, but we will never get with our single-use zoning. It's not even a secret, right? We just left it out of our zoning burger. Part three describes exceptions that are also allowed. So there are residential buildings, duplexes, small apartments, cultural, sporting, health facilities, gas stations, and even non-disruptive commercial operations as well. As you may have guessed from this description, we're not really talking about zoning in major or even secondary cities. Like Japan's lowest zoning category, this is mostly rural or suburban fringe settlement. And even with that, these tend to be relatively compact instead of sprawling. This mix of uses is consistent in German land use for decades. And for me, what made living in Germany without a car incredibly easy for my family. The mix of uses was great. Where we lived, there was a broad mix of housing directly on our street, duplexes, high-end detached houses. We lived in a brand new fourplex of three bedroom maisonettes. We had bigger apartment buildings. There was a broad array of uses. We had a train station bakery, banks, bike shop. There were small businesses, home offices. Our doctor was in our neighborhood. And we also had a sizable brewery in our backyard. What did that entail? Well, we smelled hops a few times a month. Uh, maybe an empty keg would be dropped. But really, frankly, it was nothing. It wasn't any louder than the low-rise neighborhood that I live in now. And like Japan, as those zoning levels go higher, as we move into urban areas, the things that are allowed, they continue to increase. The Allgemeine Wohngebiete, the general residential areas primarily for housing, allow residential buildings, shops, bars, restaurants, serving the area, non-disturbing manufacturing, social, religious, health, cultural, and sporting facilities. There are also exceptions to allow hotels, large commercial buildings, administrative buildings. Again, it's that broader mix, right? It's allowed outright. And then the next level up from that, outright allowed, residential buildings, shops, hotels, bars, restaurants, office buildings. Again, it's highlighting what is allowed versus what is not permitted. And it's that allowance, it's that allowing a multitude of uses to be all within the same area, in the same vicinity, what really makes the kind of neighborhood with the mixed uses, with a higher quality of life, with walkability possible. And so, if we look at the built environment in Tokyo, in Berlin, most of the built up area of these cities it's actually not much older than Seattle or San Francisco, but the feel of these cities, the planning of these cities, it's wildly different. And the corresponding carbon footprints compared to U.S. cities, they're substantially lower. The ability to get around and do daily tasks and commute to work without a car to live a low-carbon life, it is both significantly easier and affordable. Now, in the neighborhood I live in in Seattle, it's relatively close to the neighborhood we lived in in Bayern. We have a small grocery store. 
multiple cafes, restaurants, a record store, salon. We have a relatively wide mix of housing. There are apartments, there are single family houses, townhouses, duplexes, ADUs. So there's a surprisingly broad economic diversity here. It could be greater, but we don't really allow the zoning levels where you could see something like social housing work out. And remember, in the US, we generally only permit those buildings on loud polluted arterials for some reason. And so it's possible to move in that direction, but I think we need to largely move away from that single use zoning. And we need to be more permissive in the way that we do our zoning rather than prohibitive. So really, where do cities go from here? Will slightly modifying zoning codes to allow just a little bit more intensity of the same use, will this really result in these sorts of cities and neighborhoods we want and need to live a low carbon lifestyle? Will cities be able to enact spatial planning policies that allow for quicker adaptation to a changing climate? Can cities actually maintain their zoning categories and even become a 15 minute city or something that's more amenable to not requiring a car for every single daily task? In order to do that, cities are going to need to figure out how to get a better mix of uses in their zoning. Maybe there are paths to just abolishing zoning altogether. It's that radical mixing that is really intriguing to me. There's a couple of really interesting things going on in Europe around these issues right now. And so in the weeks ahead, we'll be talking about some of these strategies. So that's all I've got for this week. Have a good one. Ciao. Thanks to our listeners for joining us on the Livable Low Carbon City podcast. We'll be back with another episode soon to broaden the discourse and highlight how we can co-create a low carbon urban future together. If you'd like to know more about what Larch Lab is doing, please subscribe to our monthly newsletter. I'll add the link to the episode notes.